EU Confidential gets started right after this message. Today's episode is presented by SQM. World-leading lithium producer SQM has one of the lowest carbon, water, and energy footprints in the global market. The nice thing about the European Union and part of why I've been so happy to support the progress that we're making here is the European Union is very linguistically diverse. Any solution that scales across the European Union will also likely bootstrap some of those interventions in other parts of the world. Hello, and welcome to EU Confidential. I'm Matt Karnichnik, Politico's chief Europe correspondent in Berlin, filling in for Andrew Gray this week as he rambles across the Scottish Highlands with his kilt and bagpipes. Even in his absence, we've managed to cobble together a fantastic episode for you, so be sure to stick around. Later in the episode, you'll hear more from the voice you heard at the top of the podcast, Frances Haugen. She recently revealed a trove of secret documents about the inner workings of her former employer, a little company called Facebook. Politico's Mark Scott sat down with the whistleblower during her trip to Brussels this week, where she testified in the European Parliament. We have to just trust Facebook says. What tr- Facebook says is true, and they have repeatedly proved they do not deserve our blind faith. Also in this episode, we'll look at the growing humanitarian crisis in Eastern Europe as Belarus sends thousands of migrants to the Polish border. We'll discuss the issue and the options the EU has to manage it with migration expert Gerald Knaus. But first, let's get to our podcast panel to discuss the other issue that has crept back up to the top of the agenda in Europe, the coronavirus. So joining us on the panel this week are Doug Busvine, Politico's health editor in Brussels. Hi there, Doug. Hi, Matt. Hi, Ashley. Hi, everyone. And Ashley Furlong, our healthcare reporter who is based in London. Hi, Matt. So, Ashley, let me start with you. Uh, Just when we all thought it was safe to go back into the water, it's a Jaws reference for younger listeners. You know, we're faced once again with this very threatening situation, it seems, with COVID rates across Europe skyrocketing. How did we get here? I think one of the most important realizations from the the latest wave that's hitting Europe is that vaccination isn't the savior that we hoped it would be. We need really high levels of vaccination coverage to truly see cases stop rising. Um, We thought that perhaps the 70% vaccination coverage would be enough. But I think in the UK, we've seen that that's sort of ample evidence that even 70% isn't sufficient. So, you know, the countries that are the hardest hit are the ones with the very low vaccination rates. Um, These are in Central and Eastern Europe with Bulgaria and Romania being the countries with the lowest rates and the highest number of new deaths relative to their population sizes. So I think one of the key messages is that vaccination hasn't been able to save the continent, really. So, Doug, we're also seeing a bit of a backlash in countries that do have higher vaccination rates, including Germany and Austria, where you have a very vocal opposition, even though they're over 70 percent in both cases. You spend a lot of time in my ancestral home. What's going on in little Austria? Well, Little Austria is um, catching uh, what's happening. Infections are taking off. People are out and about. The summer is coming to an end. And uh, in most countries around the European Union, infections are actually higher than they were a year ago. And we all remember what last winter was like. So there is a 
this is forcing a policy response from governments. And uh, we're seeing any number of steps to push people to get vaccinated short of compelling them to. Austria has been one of the early movers with a thing called 2G, which is in German geimpft and genesen, so vaccinated and recovered. They are saying you have to get vaccinated or you have to be recovered from COVID to go to the restaurant, have your schnitzel or go to the movies or do anything else in a large group. That has finally pushed people towards getting vaccinated. Well, I think we would all go great lengths for a good schnitzel. But in Southern Europe, Ashley, it seems that they have cracked the code in terms of vaccination rates in both Spain and Portugal. You have vaccination rates of over 90 percent. I think many people will remember these countries were hit particularly hard uh, at the height of the pandemic a year or so ago. What's the outlook for those countries? I think it's a really positive situation we're seeing there. And I think we should also note that in these countries with really high vaccination rates, they've only recently sort of lifted restrictions. What we've seen throughout Europe is you can only really lift restrictions when you have these really high vaccination sort of coverage. Uh, and countries that have lifted restrictions earlier, the UK um, and we're seeing in, in Belgium, um, you know, once you lift those restrictions, cases rise. We we all know that, but I think experts are increasingly saying you need a vaccine plus strategy. So that's vaccination and some form of restrictions, you know, not not necessarily, you know, a lockdown, but masking, um, COVID passes, as, as Doug was just talking about. And I think we're seeing in these southern countries with very high vaccination rates, they're still masking. So I think it's a very positive picture we're seeing there. But obviously, borders are, are open and, you know, people are moving across Europe. So we could see numbers increase in the coming months. If I could come in there, there's a really interesting progress that's been made in countries like Portugal and Spain in vaccinating kids. Uh, so 12 to 18 year olds are eligible to be vaccinated and, and they really rolled those um, vaccination drives out quickly, caught the um, autumn term at school. And that differentiates some of these Southern European countries from the UK, which has been slower to uh, vaccinate school children and started this um, process with infections already a higher rate. So that's another big fork in the road right there. Doug, what role do you think the EU has to play here? Or Brussels should be playing here, if any at all? I think it's a tough one for Brussels um, to influence. I mean, they've um, the most important thing that Brussels has done is buy ample doses of vaccines for all of the members of the European Union. But it's down to the countries to use them. And the big problem is that uh, in particular in places like Romania or Bulgaria, you've got less than a third or around a third of the population vaccinated. There's not much you can do uh, beyond that. It really comes down to building confidence in vaccines overcoming that hesitancy. But it's a huge mountain to climb for these countries. Uh, they're in a state of chronic political instability. Another election coming up in Bulgaria, the third this year. Romania can't form a stable government. These are all huge obstacles to getting the last mile covered. Well, there's a few miles to cover in vaccinating the population more broadly. And are either of you hearing any any whispers? Obviously, no politician is going to say this out loud at the moment. But during the last spikes in the pandemic, I think we all remember the Schengen 
being suspended. This is obviously a measure of last resort, but are either of you hearing those kinds of whispers at the moment? Doug? Well, what's interesting is, in fact, the um, discussions around mobility and the inputs from the European Centre for Disease Control are that this colour-coded map where red zones indicate high infection and should be subject to tighter restrictions, that's sort of being dropped. There doesn't seem seem to be the appetite to maintain those sorts of risk-based travel restrictions, Uh, but it's not really clear uh, where we go from here. I mean, I think it's important to understand that the vaccines do work well and the amount of hospitalisation and fatalities as a result of COVID is down by orders of magnitude compared to the situation a year ago. So we can tolerate higher infections. The trouble is that this um, Delta variant is so, so contagious that it can get out of hand really quickly. And uh, it seems here right now that the politicians are a bit on the back foot in terms of reacting to that trend. So more pain later could be the result. And yet, Ashley, uh, winter is literally coming quickly. What do you think we can expect over the next month or two in terms of the infection rate across Europe? Winter's always an incredibly hard um, time for health systems across the block. And they are already struggling with huge backlogs from the pandemic. And now with cases rising and hospitalizations rising across Europe, there's a lot of concern about the ability of health systems to sort of be able to, to continue through the winter. Infection-wise, we're definitely going to see uh, increases in many countries. Whether that increase leads to more hospitalizations, that's the big question. Um, and whether it leads to more deaths is also the big question. We are seeing hospitalizations rise, but I think it's the level that they rise to that everyone's very unsure of. Um, We won't see a repeat of last winter. I think that is what people should be uh, relieved to hear. I think no one expects the same devastating scenario that we saw last year, but it's going to be a really tough winter. Doug? They do have the capacity. The beds are there. You know, governments have spent more on health, but the real problem is that burned out um, health staff who've been doing this for 18 months. A lot of people are dropping out of the profession. It's very hard to find new staff. So the strain is on the people side, and that will really kick in over the course of the winter. Doug, Ashley, I'm afraid we're going to have to leave it on that somewhat worrying note, but I'm sure you'll be back soon to give us the latest on the politics of the pandemic. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And now let's turn to the other topic, making waves in Brussels and around the continent this week. Hundreds of refugees have been marched in recent days to the Polish border by Alexander Lukashenko, the strongman leader of Belarus, who has been using migrants as weapons to punish the European Union for what he views as increasingly punitive sanctions. To talk us through the situation and discuss what the EU can do to resolve this humanitarian crisis, we have the co-founder of the think tank, the European Stability Initiative, Gerard Knaus. There's obviously a lot of discussion right now in the EU about what the EU can do in this situation. And so far, the only answer anyone really has come up with is to impose more sanctions, which so far has not seemed to impress Lukashenko very much. What would you advise the commission to do in this situation? Well, Let's perhaps first start with why sanctions are useful but impotent in the end. They are useful because they would signal to Lukashenko 
that his attempt to get the EU to withdraw the sanctions, which he says triggered his uh, aggression using migrants at the border, he, want, he says he wants to get the EU to withdraw those, that this is not going to work. But let's not be naive. Sanctions are in the end a question of money. And if Russia has a strategic interest in Lukashenko prevailing in the European Union, failing in dealing with this crisis, it will easily compensate whatever the costs are to Lukashenko. And for Russia, I think there is a very obvious bigger strategic gain, which is to discredit the very instrument of sanctions, to show the European Union that any time in the future that anyone in Germany or elsewhere is tempted to impose sanctions, for example, for an aggression in Ukraine, as happened in 2014, uh, Russia can always, like Belarus, move a few thousand people to the borders of the European Union. And with an EU that is then divided, helpless, hypocritical, uh, violent, confused, and in the end, forced to negotiate, this would be a, a major strategic shift in the security architecture of Eastern Europe. Given the pictures that we're seeing now coming from the Polish border, this is something that we've also seen in Greece and um, Lampedusa, other places over the years. Do you think with winter coming now, uh, literally, do, do you think that we're going to see some kind of uh, emergency action by Poland or by the EU here? Or is this standoff just going to continue? Well, I think short of uh, going back to negotiate with Lukashenko and giving in, the most likely scenario at the moment is an escalation of violence. And yet there is a big difference between the situation at this border and the many pushbacks we have seen in recent years elsewhere. We have, of course, seen pushbacks for years on the Croatian-Bosnian border. We've seen, they're actually officially listed by the Hungarian authorities, 50,000 people being pushed back from Hungary to Serbia. And we've seen for two years, Greek authorities push back people from Greek islands or in the GNC back to Turkey. The difference here is Bosnia, Serbia, or Turkey have then not responded with this human cynical ping pong of pushing them back again. Turkish Coast Guards pick up the people that Greece pushes back. Serbia or Bosnia accept them back. Lukashenko has no moral or political hesitation to let people die. We've seen this in recent weeks. At least 10 people have died already. As the winter is descending, as cold is uh, gripping this region, this could be not only a massive, and it already is, humanitarian catastrophe. It could be a moral catastrophe for European Union that acts as if it sees a boat filling up with water and doesn't, not only doesn't rescue it, but watches it sink and the people drown because it says we will not be blackmailed. But of course, that makes us an accomplice to this crime against humanity. But if it accepts everyone in, of course, Lukashenko will know and will find it even easier to lure more people into Belarus because what he's selling, and he's even earning money on this, it's a perfect setup for him. People pay thousands of euros, come into Belarus, and he's selling access to Germany. He says, come here. In the end, you will get through and you'll be in Germany in a few days. This will be even easier if the European Union lets everyone in. So 
The European Union must let people in, but at the same time, it must find a way to stop people going to Belarus. That is the dilemma. And it must do so without giving in to the blackmail of Minsk and Moscow, and it must do so fast. But don't you think part of the problem here is that the EU is not in control at the Polish border? It's the Polish government, the peace-led government uh, in Warsaw. They have no intention of letting Frontex take a more forceful role here. Is the EU really powerless here? This exposes the complete strategic confusion at the heart of Frontex. You know, you talk about the European Union. Frontex is the EU border agency. It has a budget of more than 500 million at the moment, a year. It is based in Warsaw. It is supposed to deal with such situations. And we discover that Frontex was never thought through because it turns out countries that want to use force at the border will not want Frontex there. They don't want witnesses. So you're right. There is a strategic problem for the EU, but there is a bigger confusion, which is we cannot really tell the Poles with a hope of success to let anyone in and without, secondly, outlining how this will stop. And that is what gets me to the proposal my colleagues and I have been promoting for weeks now in Berlin in particular, which is that Europe needs allies. We need to reach out to the countries that actually have the most to lose from this going wrong, which are the democracies in Eastern Europe. You know, Ukraine, for example, the moment it becomes clear that a few migrants can change the strategic calculations of the whole European Union, Ukraine is exposed in an even more dangerous way to Russian blackmail. And that is why I have promoted the idea that Europe should react proactively. Germany in particular should actually say, we are going to help Ukraine more now. We are going to make an anti-blackmail pact. And the idea that Ukraine would offer to take those that after a cutoff date are reaching Poland or Lithuania so that the asylum procedure will take place in Ukraine. Legally, it's possible. I've written a paper. I've shared this with the German government negotiators. But the real point is political. Send a signal to people. Don't believe Lukashenko. He will steal your money. He will take thousands of euros. You will end up at the border. The European Union will not let you die. That's not how we stop you. But it will transfer you to a country where you don't actually want to go, where your rights will be safeguarded, where you can even apply for asylum. And I think this would stop the rivals very quickly. But in return for Ukraine helping the European Union, becoming a real strategic asset to the European Union, Germany and America and the United States should promise much more serious support to Ukraine to be resilient against Russian pressure. And then the signal to the Kremlin is, wait, this is not what was planned. We have more American, more EU, more German support for the democracies in Eastern Europe that we try to bully. Uh, this is not going well. Dear Mr. Lukashenko, uh, call it off. Could you just put the numbers in perspective for us? Because a lot of people see these pictures who don't focus on migration um, as intensely as, as some of us do. And they're reminded of what happened in 2015, obviously. But these numbers are much smaller than what we saw in 2015, are they not? Uh, this is such an important point, and I'm so, so I'm really thankful that you that you raised this because the images we get from the border, we should be very very clear. These are manipulated. There is a, a, a war of images going on. So we see a few hundred men 
that are actually probably all controlled by Belarus security forces, the way they behave, where they go, what they do. They are not free. And so we see these images that, that project an image of an invasion. But if you actually look at the numbers, still today, the total number of all people who've crossed from Belarus into the European Union and reached Germany is less than came in October 2015 in one day to Germany. So all this year, it's about nine, eight to 9,000 people who've reached Germany. The sense of loss of control is what makes this so frightening. But 4,000 people, which is what the Polish minister has said, are now on the Belarus side in the estimates of Poland. 4,000 people. That is the number that uh, Germany could take in in a few hours in autumn 2015. So it's not a problem of the numbers. It's a problem of the strategy. If we manage to find a way to undercut the message of Lukashenko that, please, pay me money and I will take you to Germany. If this doesn't work anymore, we could easily afford to take in everyone who's now at that border and inflict a strategic defeat both to him and to his master in, in Moscow. Herr Knaus, thank you very much for your time. I thank you. Coming up right after this short message, we have an exclusive interview with Facebook whistleblower Francis Haugen. Stay with us. A message from SQM. SQM is a global company that has one of the lowest carbon, water, and energy footprints in the lithium industry. Through a combination of internal policies, such as sustainability, ethics, and human rights policy based on the UN's SDGs, and commitments such as reaching carbon neutrality by 2030, SQM demonstrates its devotion to ensuring its operations meet surging lithium demand while being environmentally responsible. Lithium-ion batteries will play an essential role in broader efforts to decarbonize our global mobility, says Pablo Altamirez, SQM's SVP of Business Lithium and Iodine, but reassures that theirs is one of the most sustainable worldwide. Read the full interview here. Now it's time to hear from Facebook whistleblower Frances Haugen. She sat down with Politico's chief technology correspondent, Mark Scott, earlier this week. So, Mark, not everybody has been following this story as closely as you have. What can you tell us about who Frances Haugen is and why she's decided to come to Brussels this week? Frances Haugen is a former Facebook employee who over the summer came forward with a lot of internal documents, first to the Wall Street Journal and then to a consortia of media outlets, including Politico, about what she'd been seeing inside Facebook and, in her words, where the company put profit over people's security. Initially, she spoke to the U.S. Senate about her time at the company. But I'm here today because I believe Facebook's products harm children, stoke division, and weaken our democracy. And then in the last couple of weeks, she's made it over here to Europe, first speaking to the U.K. Parliament about their own online content proposals, which are coming down the pike. They routinely try to reduce the discussion to things like, you can either have transparency or privacy. Which do you want to have? And on Monday, she came over to Brussels, where she spent almost three and a half hours talking to members of the European Parliament about their similar proposals, known as the Digital Services Act. But today, we can't make this kind of independent assessment of Facebook. We have to just trust Facebook says what tr Facebook says is true, and they have repeatedly proved they do not deserve our blind faith. We met briefly after her performance at the European Parliament at a hotel just around the corner here in central Brussels. 
I want to start off with something you said to the uh, members of the European Parliament yesterday mm-hmm. uh, in terms of, I'm going to quote this, I believe what I did was right and necessary for the common good, but I know Facebook has infinite resources which they could use to destroy me. Yes. It's pretty strong words. Yeah. Um, how do you feel about taking on that risk? I think there's a real thing where, you know, you can be a reasonable person and when faced with a choice where you say, I could save one life, but it would come at great cost to myself. I think a reasonable person can say, I don't want to take on that burden. But if it was 10 lives or it was 100 lives or 1,000 lives, I think almost everyone would think a little harder. And I genuinely believe there's like a million lives on the line or 10 million lives on the line in some of the most fragile places on earth. And anything they could do to me, it feels like I know that they could do horrible things to me. They could, you know, um, tarnish my name. They could fund troll armies. They could sue me. There's lots of things they could do. Um, but compared to having a million lives on the line or 10 million, like it just, it, nothing, none of those harms seem like things that outweigh that. I mean, you mentioned this, the suing question, and Facebook is obviously a well-resourced company. Mm-hmm. When, when you were thinking about doing this and, and making the decision, how much did that play into your, your thinking about doing this? I was incredibly blessed in that my mother, so my mother used to be a professor and now she's a priest. She likes to talk and she cares about people. And I got to live with her for six months last year. And one of the things that I have that almost no other whistleblower has had is I have had basically infinite therapy to think about like, do I want to do this? Because I had, I lived with a priest, right? And so I have a great sense of, of peace now on that because like I had the time and the luxury to become aligned with that. And so, yeah, I'm just not that stressed by it. I accept the consequences. So uh, you have met with a bunch of of regulators, Mm -hmm. politicians, policymakers, et cetera, in multiple countries. What's the thing that surprised you Mm -hmm. about them in terms of their knowledge of the topic, Mm -hmm. what they want to do, things that they they may not understand? Mm -hmm. Um, I've been very surprised coming to both the UK and the EU how well-versed regulators are here about these issues. And I think it's because Europe and even the UK have experienced much worse security harms than the United States has. Facebook has overwhelmingly invested its safety investments in protecting the United States and American English because they know that's where they pose the greatest risk of regulation. I think part of why Europe and the EU are further along is they have experienced worse harms because they are more linguistically diverse. And so I've been very happy that they're taking these issues seriously. And it looks like there's pieces of legislation that may get, you know, get shipped in the next six months. So as you said, there's regulation coming on the side of the Atlantic, both within the EU and the UK. Mm-hmm. The US folk would like to do something, at least some mm-hmm. would like to do. What, what lessons do you think they can take from what's going on over here in Europe? I think Facebook has done a really good job of reducing down what can be done to false choices. So in the United States, it seems like the entire discussion on what to do about Facebook is either break up Facebook or um, do we censor too much slash too little? And the reality is there are many more flexible options that I think would actually be very palatable on both sides of the Atlantic. So the thing I've been advocating for is something I call the one, two, three risk assessment approach, where you start with one, which is kind of what's in the current pieces of legislation, which is the company audits itself for risks and discloses them. But I think there needs to be a companion step, the two, which is we need to survey people in the community, civil society groups, those kinds of things. And three is... Facebook has gone away for a long time with saying, oh, we're so sorry. This is really hard. We're working on it. The reality is they need to articulate how they're going to solve these problems. And then they need to disclose the data that would allow us to know, are they making progress on these problems? And I think having that one, two, three approach is kind of like how we label food packaging. 
right? In the United States, we're okay with the idea that the FDA can mandate what the calories are, that the ingredients are what they say they are. And so I think having the nutritional label, as it were, for social media is really important because then people can make informed choices. You mentioned yesterday in the testimony for the European Parliament that Facebook was the worst of what you'd seen, but you've also worked for other tech companies. Mm -hmm. Um, Is there things going on in those companies or more broadly in the industry that you think people should be more aware of beyond the Facebook question? I think engagement-based ranking reproduces itself and the problems over and over again. So, for example, at Pinterest, I worked on um, skin tone filters. And part of the reason I did is because I'm extremely pale, right? I understand. <laughs> um, and uh, and I, I started that project with a redhead, right? So we wanted to be able to get makeup or get things that were the right clo- color clothes for people that look like us. It happened to be that also gave an opportunity to people of color because Pinterest's ranking had inadvertently learned racism, right? They, there was only maybe 15% of the users that were people of color. And it had learned that when you search for eyeshadow, that if you show a person of color, that content doesn't perform as well. No one came in there and nefariously said, we're going to be racist. But algorithms are just optimization engines. And so when we put in those skin tone filters, we gave an opportunity for people to get content that was like what they wanted. And it gave a chance for people who create content to actually connect with the right users. So these problems are across the industry. Like algorithms aren't actually intelligent. They're only as intelligent as we make them. And so all these companies need more transparency. And they need to be able to have public risk assessments just like Facebook. When I look at what's coming across in Europe in particular, it's resource intensive. Mm-hmm. It involves a lot of capacity. Many of places in other parts of the world maybe don't have that. So can it scale to use the tech language? Can mm-hmm. you get similar regulation in mm-hmm. a Myanmar, in a Brazil, mm-hmm. when they may don't ha- not have the capacity of resources that, say, you know, the European Union or mm-hmm. the U.S. might have? The nice thing about the European Union and part of why I'm, I've been so happy to support the progress that we're making here is the European Union is very linguistically diverse. Any solution that scales across the European Union will also likely bootstrap some of those interventions in other parts of the world because content-neutral, language-neutral solutions are the only thing that will scale to the most diverse places and small countries in Europe. Um, And so I I think there's a real opportunity here for if Europe can get the Digital Services Act right, that it can actually um, provide a foundation that will make people safe in a lot of places. Okay, so this is when I go super wonky. What do you think the Digital Services Act does well? And where do you think it needs to be fixed? Um, I think there's like at least two major loopholes. So one is around trade secrets. Just for people who don't understand what that means. Oh, sure. Um, uh, See, we we went too wonky. You invited me there. Um, So a trade secret is something that a company believes is essential to how the company is run and is a thing that they keep private and so to decrease competition or to keep it from their competitors. If you come in and say you can protect trade secret or you can always wave the trade secret flag, All of the data that I've talked about disclosing, hypothetically, would tell you things about how the algorithm works. Because that's the the argument that we're having right now, the idea that the the system, the way that content is being amplified, is the danger. If they're allowed to hide that under trade secrets, there's no point in us writing this law. The second thing is around um, the difference between illegal content and harmful but legal. So when we talk about the idea that Facebook is pushing kids towards eating disorders, or for people who are depressed, it can make them even more depressed because they self-soothe by just consuming more content. 
Those aren't illegal things, but they're deeply harmful, and, and kids are dying because of it. Um, there's many other kinds of harmful but legal content, like misinformation, which can destabilize our democracies. And so I think that's another area that they're going to have to wrestle with, because we really need it to be a comprehensive law, not one that's just about, say, terrorism. But then the problem with legal but harmful mm-hmm. is that it's still legal. Right? Mm-hmm. It's very, it can be very harmful to individuals. And the, the documents about Instagram, you, you totally uh, make that point. But is that not the problem? I mean, as much as I want that stuff to be taken off the platform, if it is legally under the law Mm -hmm. allowed, you can't get around that. So before I I compared the idea of having one, two, three risk assessments to the idea that we have nutritional labels on on food, part of why I advocate for those kinds of risk assessments is right now Facebook doesn't have to disclose all these harmful things. Um, And if they had to list them and say, we know these are harms, and this is our plan to fix them, and you can monitor us this way, people could make a choice of what they want to actually do. Because right now, parents are not aware of how dangerous Instagram is because Facebook hides the information that we as the public would need to make choices, and that violates our dignity. When you were looking through the documents to potentially take out of Facebook, mm-hmm. was there a particular one that caught your eye that was could have mm-hmm. made it clear for you that this had to be done? Oh, um, unquestionably. So there's a document from April 2020, that was on the question of soft interventions. So a hard intervention is when you take a person off the platform, you take a piece of content off the platform. And so a large number of people, probably 50 people inside the company across all the little contributors, um, thought up ways that you could make the platform less dangerous that didn't involve you taking pieces of content off, like figuring out where the amplification hotspots were. And one of them was something called downstream MSI, meaningful social interactions, So downstream MSI is the idea that when Facebook picks content for me, it could prioritize my happiness, my engagement, or it could say, Francis, you are a tool of Facebook. And if you reshare that, you might generate all this engagement amongst your thousands of friends. So Facebook knows that that one feature is one of the most dangerous ones in its ranking because the content that people interact with after it's reshared, because people don't like reshares. You like original content from your 20 closest friends. You like research from your five closest friends. The only content that gets lots of engagement when it's, quote, downstream of you is extreme polarizing content. And so in this document about soft interventions, it had notes from a meeting with Mark. And someone had suggested, at least in the at-risk countries, so these are the hottest of hotspots in the world, places like Ethiopia, we should turn that feature off because we don't have language classifiers in them. We can't tell what's going on. We should just make the platform safer. And Mark said, with regard to going broad with turning off MSI in at-risk countries, we weren't going to do it if it hit the main metric, MSI, if it hit it at all. And so I want, to th- I want you to think for a moment about how crazy this is. It is literally a made-up metric, right? A meaningful social interaction could be hate speech and still considered, quote, meaningful, So because people's bonuses were tied to that, that if you hit MSI, a lot of people are going to get paid a little bit less. They might stay at the company less. I think that's why Mark said, if you hit it at all, you can't launch this. And I feel like that that was like a, it's like, it's it's so frustrating to see that, you know, Mark could have made a lot of places more stable for functionally free. And he chose not to, to protect a goal metric. 
So in preparation for this interview, I, I went through some of the clips and I found something <laughs> from 997 from the Iowa City Press Citizen. Are you serious? No, because that's, oh. <laughs> that's how geeky I am. And you mentioned specifically you want yeah. to be a lawyer or a politician. Yeah. Do you still want to be a lawyer or a politician? You know what's so funny? Do you know how I ended up not being a lawyer? So uh, I, to be a lawyer, you have to go to law school. And I had two options. I could either take the LSAT or I could take the GMAT. And the GMAT, I could take any time I wanted. Like I, I could schedule it and you just go to like kind of a room. But the LSAT, you had to do in a specific room at a specific time, four times a year. And I, I had this moment of clarity where the fact that I didn't like that I had to do that was a sign I probably shouldn't be a lawyer. And a politician? And, and with Gary being a politician, I have extreme dietary restrictions. Like I feel so bad for my team because every meal, they worry that I'm going to get sick. And the reality is, like, I, I am safest and I will be happiest in Puerto Rico. Um, and I, you know, no one needs to pity me. Like, I live on the beach. But, like, I think my job is to be an educator. I don't think it's to be a politician. Francis, thank you for so much for taking the time today. My pleasure. Thanks to Mark for bringing us that discussion. But before we go, we should add that Facebook vehemently denies Haugen's claims that it puts profits over people's security online. And it says that it has invested billions of euros worldwide to combat the spread of hateful and harmful content on its platforms. The company has also said that Haugen did not work in many of the areas that she talked about in her revelations, and therefore is not an expert to make the claims that she has made public. And that's all the time we have for this episode of EU Confidential. If you haven't already, please subscribe or follow us wherever you are listening so you never miss an episode. And you can always send feedback or ideas directly to our podcast team. The email address is podcast at politico.eu. Special thanks this week to Stefan Ferris, Lucas Kotkamp, and our executive producer, Christina Gonzalez. Auf Wiedersehen from Berlin.